What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the best 30 to hour long minute of your day, whatever you may be listening to this. This is the Food Food Jerk Podcast. I'm your boy, Omar Muhammad, with my girl. Annalisa Gale. Hey, my friends. Yeah, she, they're not your friends. They don't really like you like that. They, <laughs> um, <laughs> <My friend. laughs> uh, you know, I hope you guys have been uh, doing better during uh, month six during the pandemic. Is it month six? It feels like six. Five, uh, five. I have lost count. I am really hanging on to a thread right now. <laughs> I think we all are. So yeah, um, shout out to uh, to you you soldiers out there, and not shout out to you that have been acting like this is a normal day. You've been throwing parties and throwing pool parties Ooh. and stuff. I, I mean, because we're some still people, here. People, uh, yeah, it's like I thought about this today. I was like, half of America is doing everything right, quarantining, washing hands. The other half of America is acting like nothing is happening. So, so there was actually a thread on Twitter I saw uh, this month. About a woman who says she got she went and got her test she got tested she tested positive but she really needed a wax so she went and got she went to the joint and got a wax while she was positive while she was positive and then after that she went to Six Flags and that was in Texas so I give up <laughs> I just I don't know what to say that is <laughs> terrible um so yeah. Uh, shout out to all of you guys but that's enough bad news we're not here for the bad news we're here for the feel good. Three yes, things. We are. That, you know, I told them our, um, I am going to keep it short because, guys, I, like I said, mid a pandemic, guys. You know, I'm really, I'm really struggling, like, like most of you are. Before you start, guys, can we say a prayer for Miss Annalisa? She, <laughs> she is struggling to think of three things struggling. that are making her happy this month. It's, I need. I mean, I'm happy overall. I am grateful. I'm. There are so many things to be grateful for. Um, things that we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast. A roof over my head. Um, I'm still working. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for those things. I'm also grateful for friends this month. You know, keeping our friendship strong, even amid a pandemic, is very hard, but we've managed to do it. So I'm grateful for bonds that are withstanding the test of time. And um, I'm grateful for telling good stories uh, this month. I'm, hey. I've shared a lot of good stories uh, that are... Uh, not only making people happy, but people are sharing them. People are uh, grateful that we're highlighting uh, some of the, the great things happening in the community, especially in the African-American community. So I'm grateful for those stories. I'm grateful for that. Those are the things I'm feeling good about. How about you, Omar? Well, before I go, I just want to say, yeah, Allah, uh, can you please bless Miss Annalisa's next month that she has more things, you know, things that are... <laughs> Things that are a part of her normal day routine. Things that just come out of nowhere that just put a smile on her Amen. face. Amen. I, I, I receive it in Jesus' name. Well, you, you receive it in Jesus' name. I'm going to pray to Allah for you. I'm going like, to Allah, can you, can you please? Allah, yes. I, I mean. We're praying to right now, yes. Jesus I mean. Amen. I mean. Al- Alhamdulillah. So now over to my three things. I just bought a brand new, my first very own DSLR camera. Um, very, very excited about that and the possibilities of perfecting my craft and what I can possibly do with that uh, from a business Very excited for you. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. From a business standpoint, create, creativity standpoint, I'm very, very excited about that coming in and uh, building my own personal brand, continuing to do so. Um, so that's pretty very dope. Very important. Um, uh, this is uh, week, month five in Bike Gate. Bike Gate, I'm calling it. Um, cause it, oh. <laughs> yeah, cause as you guys are familiar, I've been trying to buy a bike this entire pandemic. 
But apparently the whole world's trying to buy a bike right now. This is the perfect time to bike, apparently. Yeah. Um, Just go ahead and, and rent one, those uh, free ones. So, so I, I, I bought one uh, via Amazon, but it's not supposed to arrive until next month. Jesus. So this will be bike number five that I've purchased. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got my money back for all the other bikes, though. So that's that's good. <sighs> Man, um, Omar, the struggle is real. I, like, I, I legit <laughs> was like, I probably don't even want to ride a bike anymore. Like, there's really not even that appetite. I'll just run and just and just kill my knees. It don't even matter. But um, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, and the last thing I'm very happy for this month is uh, my, my golfing mechanics. So I don't know if I told you this before that, you know, I, uh, I picked up golfing during the pandemic. I've been no, I, you didn't tell me that. That's I didn't tell you all that? I no. thought I told you all Oh, yeah, I've been golfing probably every Saturday morning with my friends. Oh, nice. Uh, at an easy golf course. Um, and one of my friends have been golfing for about two, three years, so he's better than the rest of us. And the rest of us are <laughs> trying to figure it out. And when I first went out there, I was, I was doing well. Like, I picked it up really quickly. But my mechanics has been off. And I never realized that my mechanics went bad. And just yesterday, he was like, yo, like, are you bending your back elbow? Because I don't think you are. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I am. And I bent it. And, like, I was hitting that thing, like, 200 yards. And I was like, bro, like, this whole time? So, um. <laughs> the little things. It's the little things. The thing. pandemic. It's, it's the little it's, things. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for my golfing mechanics. I'm, go, I'm grateful for the golfing hobby. Uh, picking up another sport just to stay active, something to do. And I keep it with a, a close, a close-knit group of friends. Uh, it's the same, the same four guys every every Saturday morning. So I trust those guys to be responsible and not give me coronavirus. And they trust in the same thing to me. And we just go out there and we have fun. And it's, and it's good to connect with your guys uh, while doing something fun. So that is what I'm feeling good most about this month. Beautiful. I love it. There seems to be a lot going on there. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I try. I try. And I, and I pray that you have something similar happen for you next month. I hope so, too. I mean, I have great things happening. It's just, you know, I just feel for people. And it's hard to it's hard to see half the world like doing okay and then half the world completely suffering. I don't, I don't think it's half. I think it. I think a lot of the world is doing okay now, but you know, we're just suffering. But <laughs> but it is what it is. Um All right. We, moving on to the Pasa Pasa. What's, yes, what, what, what enough things are gone. Like, enough things are gone. Let me gasoline. Let's go. What you got? <laughs> well, let's, since we're talking about the pandemic already, let's start there. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people have been going to Jamaica uh, and checking it out. Uh, shout out to them, you know, taking the risk and, you know, willing trying to, to keep go their money there. coming in because they know. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. It, I, personally, it's not the right time for me right now, but, um, you know, I'm not going to, uh, shame anyone for doing anything. So yeah. Anyways, the CDC is apparently warning people now to avoid non-essential travel to Jamaica. Uh, the warning is at level three. I'm looking on the website. It says the CDC recommends travelers avoid all non-essential international travel to Jamaica travelers at increased risk for severe illnesses from COVID-19 should consider postponing all travel, including essential travel to Jamaica. And it says in bold print, uh, COVID-19 risk in Jamaica is high. But people on Twitter, especially Jamaicans, are like, hmm, America, hmm, come on, uh, what are you saying? Because we're doing most of all the right things is what the people on Twitter are saying. And um, 
I'm not. They're not seeing how they're on this. Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, Jamaica hasn't closed their borders, and they're allowing people in. I heard they're doing very strict things, like tracking people once they arrive, mm-hmm. and testing people once they arrive, and testing them when they leave, and doing all this tracing stuff. And they're taking tons of precautions. But your borders are still open, and people can travel there. And and as we know, like I just said, there are people who are testing positive and just not caring and going wherever the hell they want. Um, so I, I, I can see why the CDC says that you guys may be a little high, but I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, no one's really doing worse than us here at home. So, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, happening that was trending, uh, pretty much for the first couple weeks this month was Jamaica's high court ruling, uh, that a school was oh, authorized or legally, um, in the right, mm. uh, in banning a child with dreads. Uh, dreadlocks. Now, I will say in Jamaica, like their schools are very strict. Like uh, when I went to school, like we couldn't even wear like certain things. Like you had to wear the uniform and your hair had to be a certain, you know, just pretty much in like a uh, updo or something, something simple where you're not, it's not all over the place. There are certain styles that they don't, they're strict about still. I don't know. I don't know if it's still the same way right now, but clearly <laughs> if this is what the high court is ruling, but I, I mean, a lot of people are saying it doesn't make any sense because Jamaica obviously has Bob Marley, Rastafarians are in Jamaica. It's a pretty big part of our tourism and what we're known for. Uh, so a lot of people are really upset about this, but uh, I haven't seen this ruling change. Uh, Jamaica's prime minister said he was looking into it, but I have not seen the family come out and say that this uh, decision was overturned. So unfortunate to see that uh, happening in Jamaica uh, for for sure. Um, I find it very crazy, actually, considering that, I mean, this is this is black hair in a black country that it's it's it's, insane. I mean, it just goes to show uh, that uh, when we were colonized, a lot of things did not leave. A lot of ideologies so i'll leave it there but that's it all right well sorry that's going on in the motherland uh but now to keeping up with the quasias all right for all the soccer heads out there ghana is actually making a move to to rebuild their soccer program and they want to start with the kid who plays for arsenal right now so uh eddie ketan ketia uh, he plays for Arsenal's under-21 squad. He plays for the three Lions under-21 level. And if you're a soccer head, you know that he's an up-and-coming like star uh, over there. And Ghana wants him to play for their national team. Um, even though they can't automatically like just pull him and say, yo, look, you're playing for us. What they're doing is they're making a play through his parents. So he was born in London. Both his parents were raised in Ghana, were, were, are from Ghana and raised in Ghana, but they, but he was born in London and is being raised in London. And Ghana's letting them know, you know, we have an interest. If you want to switch allegiance, you could come play for us. Uh, a lot of people don't think that it will actually work because, I mean, London has some of the best soccer in the world. Um, but this does give him an opportunity to go to a team and potentially be an automatic star and only work only up his profile. Uh, Ghana's been tweeting at him, uh, congratulating him on his wins in London, and he's actually responded and said, thanks. Um, even Ghana's coach said, yo, we tried, we talked to his parents, but it doesn't mean it's a done deal. So if that happens, there's a good chance that, you know, 
Ghana's soccer team could rebound from what you know, what we know from the last World Cup uh, when they had a huge falling apart over political reasons and political involvement in uh, the soccer realm. So there's that. But also, also uh, really big on the Afrobeat scene right now, your boy Burna Boy, who has Nigerian roots, was recently bigging up Ghana on The Breakfast Club. So he was on The Breakfast Aww. Club talking about a number of things, especially how he believes that every black person should find their way back to Africa at some point. Um, he said he's a big believer in that. He, he even tried to go as far as saying, you know, even though it's COVID, that you should still try to come make your way over there. But then Charlamagne had to let them know, like, yo, bro, your borders are closed. You can't, like, no one can actually do that. Uh, he was wild for even suggesting so. Um, but one thing he, uh, during that conversation uh, with Charlemagne, Charlemagne had just told Burner Boy that he had bought property in Ghana. And oh, wow. Burner Boy said this, it's the best decision you ever made. Um, you're in a beautiful place because personally, that's where I go for refuge. Now, again, Burner Boy is a Nigerian uh, artist, but bigging up Ghana. Because, I mean, the obvious is the obvious. I mean, with Jalof, you know, with scenery. Oh, my goodness. Here comes the living, bias again. It's, it's not, it's, <laughs> I, I'm telling you what, what Burner Boy is saying, all right? And Burner Boy is from Nigeria. I'm just saying. So Burner Boy is out here saying, you know, Ghana's what's up. You know, I, I, I agree. I think we should listen to, you know, celebrities sometimes. Sometimes they know what they're talking about. But shout out to Burner Boy uh, for, for repping uh, Ghana and Accra. Shout out to Charlemagne for buying some property down there. I mean, everybody got to make that move, baby. You know, it's, 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 it's a country of greatness is all I got to say. And that's, and that's wrapping up, keeping up with Kwasi. That's all I got to say. And speaking of repping, repping here in D.C., uh, we got a very special guest this month. We are so excited to have Darius Baxter on our show uh, talking about his nonprofit that is helping families as he tries to end poverty in the community. Take a listen. We're joined by Darius Baxter, who is the founder of Good Projects here in D.C., a nonprofit helping to give back to kids in the community. We're so excited to have him on the show this month. Thank you so much, Darius, for being here. Uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, how are, you, how are you doing right now with the pandemic? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm one of the, one of the lucky few that continues to be able to persevere through this moment in time, but just really happy to be on the show today. Thank you for the invite. No problem. Uh, so tell us a little bit, Darius, just about Good Projects and what you have going on. How are you all able to keep going? Um, it, it's, it's really through the people. You know, I look up and I see where we are right now as an organization. I'm um, just a tremendous amount of support uh, throughout COVID and, you know, now through the Black Lives Matter and the protest movements. Uh, it's the people. We've had an influx of donations that has allowed us to really scale up our work and helping to transition 500 families out of poverty in Southwest. Uh, so, yeah, to answer your question, it's just the people. So you kind of touched on what you guys do. You say you guys help uh, families get out of poverty. You know, how do you guys necessarily do that? Like, what, what kind of means do you do to help them make that transition? No, it's really, it's really looking at the community that we work in and the people that make it up as part of our family, you know. I think I, I know a little bit about Annalisa's story. I, don't, I apologize. I don't know as much about yours, brother. But at the end of the day, we all have family members that are going through things on any given day. They might fall on hard times. 
and it's different for each and every person that we work with. You know, what one person might not might need might not be the same thing that another person needs, and vice versa. But we like to just try to be the the biggest resource that we can. Um, be a brother for some, a, a mentor for others. I'm a son for 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 like our seniors. You know, but just being that presence in the community. So I'll give a little. Go ahead, go ahead, Omar. Just no, just to, to help Omar paint a picture of how I actually um, met Darius. Um, just we actually met at HUR when Darius was doing an interview, uh, talking about, uh, I can't, I'm sorry, Darius. I don't remember what you were talking about at that moment, but you were doing an interview with HUR and we started talking and then I realized Darius grew up in DC, uh, started this nonprofit. He actually invited me to one of the games with some of the kids that he uh, got free tickets for, uh, to help them, you know, get an experience. Talk a little bit, Darius, about how you started good projects and why you started it and why this was so important uh well i i can say it came with a lot of help like you introduced me as a founder but uh i'm, I'm grateful to have been a co-founder you know i had two amazing guys um uh, that i started this organization with um and we really put our head together while we were in our senior year at georgetown and asked ourselves what do we want our legacy to be here in dc you know is it going off you know, doing a Wall Street gig or, you know, running on one of the big five consultant firms. You know, that option was there. You know, we graduated from Georgetown. But at the end of the day, it was more important to say, all right, we've been provided these opportunities. And what are we going to do with them? Are we going to keep them for ourselves? Are we going to look to share them with, you know, those that didn't have the, the chance to get to a place like we did? You know, and I can gratefully, I can look at it and say, look, five years later, uh, you know, that was the right decision. So, like, what do you guys do necessarily? Do you guys provide housing? Do you guys give people money? What exactly does the Good Project do for these families and these communities? I know you're talking about mentorship and being a family member, but what specifically do you guys do to help that transition on? It's like, and, and that's what I'm trying to get at. You know, it's, it's not like one specific thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the traditional way how we've looked at philanthropy. It's like you have groups that get into the game. They try to cast these wide nets saying, all right, we're going to be the group that, you know, provides apples to, to you know, everybody in D.C. and everybody will get apples. And somebody else say, all right, we got oranges. And we're going to give oranges to everybody in D.C. And everybody's giving them one thing. But you got some people doing it over here, some people doing it over there. You know, all these different things happening. And for us, we were like, all right. And we were that at one point. And it was like, all right, what is going to be more impactful? if we're having small touch points doing these little things or if we focus more on one group of people, one community. Like right now we have 30 families that are in our program, 30, and that's it. And we provide every resource from internet to laptops to childcare to financial assistance um, to mentorship to substance support, like every job placement. We provide all these different services to these families. We provide housing assessments. Um, our program is all encompassing. You know, we're we're on a one on war path, transition five hundred families out of poverty, and poverty it touches so many different aspects of somebody's life. You know, poverty affects the way that you think about yourself. Poverty affects the way um, that people view you and view the standard of living that you deserve. You know, poverty affects um, how you present when you go to school. You know, and your ability to learn. Uh, it's, it's a lot of different factors that we're, we're 
we're going to have to tackle over the next decade. Uh, dear, is clearly this uh, is an issue that you're very passionate about. Talk a little bit about growing up for you here in D.C. and how you were able to uh, make it to Georgetown and now try to give back. Well, I can reflect on my childhood and the experiences that I've had now, even as an adult working in the housing communities in Southwest. I can look on my childhood and be very happy. You know, I had a blessed childhood. Uh, for whatever we didn't have in monetary value, it was made up 10 times over in the amount of love that was in my household. And you get to this point and you realize that's that's the most important thing. Uh, I have children that we work with that never have experienced what it's like to, to have somebody in their household that they know without a shadow, without loves them and mm-hmm. tells them that every day. And it helps them to grow up to become somebody that is able to love because they were given so much of it. You know, um, so it's like when you grow up having experienced something like that and you're looking out into a world and not seeing that reflected back, uh, I, I had no choice but to but to try to use my experiences to try to help somebody else. Um, and so far, God has blessed the journey to be able to do it and do it at a high level. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. It's your follow-up. I just had a question, a follow-up question real quick. So did you have a scholarship for Georgetown, Darius? Yeah, I did. I played uh, I played football for Georgetown. Played on a football scholarship. I, w- I can't say that I was the best player in the world, but <laughs> I got a great education. Hey, respect, bro. I played football in high school, and I can promise you I wasn't the best football player in the world. So the fact you got the Georgetown, you was, you was a little good. Um <laughs> D1 football player, you know, that was always a dream of mine growing up. Always. I looked up guys like Terrell Pryor and, you know, uh, Marcus Mariota, like guys that was just quick agile, and I wanted to be that. And I promised my mother she wouldn't have to pay for college. Mm. So I checked two things off the box. I was able to get scholarship, play D1 football, and my mother ain't had to pay a dime. Amen. I wanted, I wanted to be everything Navarro Bowman was, and he was across the street, and I'm not Devar Bowman, and he is. <laughs> it don't happen for everybody the same. Wow, that, that's that, that's crazy. I used to work out with Navarro. I trained with Navarro for like three, four years when he was like in his uh his heyday with the 49ers. Oh, nice. And I'm telling you, he was a freak of nature. Oh, Chuck, I played him in high school. I know all about him. But uh, to get back to the good project, though, um, you know, you say, you know, growing up in D.C., did, what, what, how would you say growing up in D.C.? Because you, you grew up in a loving household, you yeah. know, um, and, you know, the love, you know, at least satisfied, you know, any monetary issues that you guys had. But what was it about growing up in D.C. that made you, you know, when you got to Georgetown, decided, you know, I want to give back to this community? What, what, what was it? Um, it was a combination of a bunch of different things. Uh, one that kind of stands out as you're asking that question, it was really just, it was, it was the experience. Like, here I was, a young black man growing up in Washington, D.C., and going to a school like Georgetown was this thing that was, like, held and praised. And in that moment, that was just reiterating the point that my journey, my story was an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Run down all the factors of, like, where I was in my life at 17 years old. I stepped onto the campus at Georgetown. And then, you know, uh, four years later, um, to walk across the stage you know, I wasn't supposed to be there. Mm. I wasn't supposed to be there. Statistically. That's, that's the, yeah, statistically. That's the cold, hard facts. 
and it took a lot. It took a lot of willpower. It took more willpower and more lucky chances than, you know, anybody should have to have for me to be able to get to that point. And I was just like hell-bent on saying, all right, I want to create an environment. I want to create a world where I'm not just an exception to the rule, but I'm an example of what can happen like from the communities, from the experiences that I had to have as a child. So, like, when you decided you wanted to do this, like, how did you reach out to the first families? How did you find the first people who really were going to help? And how did you convince them that, you know, you and your partners are going to help guide them to this goal of getting out of poverty and creating opportunities? It's not even convincing. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a salesman. Like, at the end of the day, I'm a part of the community like everybody else. My organization is a part of the community like anybody else. So I mean, of course, like, I mean, but if, like, for instance, like, I, if, I, if I'm saying, you know, I, I can help somebody out, you know, they're not going to put 100% they trust in me because, I mean, they may know me, but they don't know everything about me. Just because they know me don't mean they're going to trust me with, with, with opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what did you do necessarily? Mm-hmm. It's, it's exactly the, the wording that you said there is just trust. And even to how I originally kind of answered the question, it's like, it's becoming a part of the community. Like we spent a year before we implemented any programming, we spent a year just meeting with people in the community, doing like community events, not doing no programming, not asking nothing from nobody, like just going in and just doing our part, just being good community people, you know, and that just that patience and that building a rapport with the residents you know, it helps you in the long run because they realize like, all right, they're not just here because they got to check a box. They're not just here because like they're trying to fill some grant. Like they're here because they actually care and they want to see our community thrive. And that shows, you know, that really shows. Speaking of building trust with the community, Darius, uh, I saw you about two weeks ago out uh, at the vigil for uh, the young man that was just recently killed uh, 10 years old. Um, or I'm sorry, he was 11 years old in uh, Southeast DC. How how did you feel at that moment, and and why did you feel the need to be there? Um, yeah, because Davon McNeil, um, I don't know. That was one that was close to me. I used to work with his mother, Crystal McNeil, oh, and uh, Davon used to when we were over at DYS. Davon and his sister used to be up there all the time. Just with their mom. Um, so when that happened, particularly when that happened, like coming off of the Purpose Tour, like that was literally the first day that we was back and that happened. And so that was just really tough. You know, you spend you, mm. you spend uh, three weeks of your life risking everything through COVID, going into all these different cities, trying to really get to the pulse of, you know, what's happening in this moment in time? Like, how can we be a best service? Like, God, use me in the way that you would have me to be used in the first mm. day that you're back it's like put right in your face. Like you go around talking about defund the police, you go around talking about um, police brutality and all these other issues that need to be fixed. And then to come back home to Washington and the biggest issue that we were facing in that moment was young black men killing innocent children. You know, that was a problem. That was very, very frustrating for me. You know, we have, there's so many issues in this country that need to be taken care of when it pertains to the black body. There's mm. hundreds, if not thousands of issues that need to be taken care of. But there's so many issues that we need to fix within our own communities, like in big ones, and ones that we have full control over. And yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's hard. 
yeah, people aren't doing what they need to do to be able to support us, but that doesn't give us the right to just harm one another. Um, and we just have to, we have to get better at that. We just have to. Speak about the purpose tour, Darius. Uh, I, I really liked what you did with that. You were sharing highlights on Instagram um, of each place that you were visiting. How many cities did you visit? Uh, you were doing this just as the movement was ramping up um, and protests were going on nationwide over uh, the killing of George Floyd. T- talk a little bit about where you went and, and what kicked that off. Um, really just following God. That's all I've been trying to do in this moment. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Uh, and my favorite line of all times, and I'll keep repeating it, uh, is that man makes plans and God laughs. And I fully subscribe to that. Um, so when everything started kicking off, I didn't react immediately. I just, you know, waited, prayed on it. And then one morning, it just kind of came, like, hey, start following this path. And it led to getting on the bus. We traveled to 13 cities in 18 days. Uh, met a lot of amazing people uh, around the country, both the community level, the, you know, the political level, uh, police, people that are formerly incarcerated, civil rights leaders. It was, a great, it was a great experience, but more than anything, it was an opportunity to learn. That's really was the most important thing. Appreciate all the coverage around it. Appreciate, you know, everybody celebrating and praising. Like, y'all are amazing, but it was to learn. God sent me on that mission. He's like, go learn as much as you can and spread this message of love. I did just that. How can people within this community help the Good Project, you know, be more impactful? How can they help you reach more people and even reach your goal of helping 500 families? Um, Help their neighbor. Help their neighbor. You know, you, you ask people in my position, I'm an executive director of a nonprofit that has to sustain a $2.5 million budget every year. You know, I can sit on here and easily be like, yo, you can support us by donating that, uh, this link or something, you know, but that might help us do what we need to do in Southwest, but our ultimate goal is to end poverty nationwide and poverty globally. That's going to take everybody pitching in, not just with donations, but you know, we all live in communities that need support. We all live next to people that we know could use a helping hand every once in a while. Like, how are we being our best neighbors? How are we really living up to the golden rule, you know, treating other people like we want to be treated? Uh, I don't, I firmly believe that what we're seeing in this country right now like it goes back to the golden rule, like across religion, across race, across culture, all of it holds true to this same basic principle. Like you got to love one another. Like you want to be loved, like treat people how you want to be treated. But at the end of the day, we're in a position right now where people don't even love themselves. Mm. So the best way that people can be helpful to us is to take a moment, really get to know themselves in this period of waiting and patience. And then when things start to settle down, Go out and love the world. Plant flowers. You know, give somebody a hug. Social distance elbow or something. You know, that's how people can help us. You spoke about lessons after you did your purpose tour. What were the lessons there that you, the main takeaways for you? And it it starts in the community. It's really one big one. Start, all change starts in the community. Like, 
people have absolutely no reason to be pissed right now. And not for any of the reasons. And I know that might be controversial to say, but hit me out. The last thing we need right now is anger. Well, we re- the thing that we need right now is action. We are sprinting to November right now, sprinting. And after November is just the first baton. We're going to take down the big domino in November, whatever that looks like for your politics. I'm not going to talk about my politics, but, you know. <laughs> Thank you for doing that, Derek. <laughs> then 24 months from then, we got another election coming up. And we got to run it right back. And the thing is, you can't just look at the federal level and be like, all right, that's what changed and happened. No. Now's the time to get educated on who our local ANCs, who are our council members, you know, depending on where you are, like what judges is up for elections, where's what's the sheriff? Like we have the ability, we have the ultimate ability to make change. And the great thing is in our generation of things being on demand, we ain't even gotta wait that long. Go ahead and get your absentee ballot done right now. That way you ain't even gotta leave the house if you don't want to. You can fill that thing out, and it's pre it's pre stamped too when you get it. So you ain't even got to pay nothing. Right. You got some options here. Well, Darius, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, for people who want to find you, uh, learn more about your organization, how can they reach you? Uh, we're at Good Projects DC across platforms, and people can follow me at uh, Darius Baxter. Love it. Love it. And if people want to become mentors to some of uh, the young people that you're helping, what's the age range and how can they get involved with that? Just, just have, just have anybody who wants to, to volunteer anything like that. Just have us, have them hit us up on uh, IG in the DMs. We'll get back to them. And before Perfect. I let you go, you know, since you, you so involved in the community, man, like where's the best place to get mumbo saws? What's the best spot? What's, what's <laughs> this like? guy's so good. <laughs> Bro, I'm not going to lie. Like, I have a struggle with this because I feel like my heart is changing and I got to catch myself sometimes, right? So I'm old school, so I still like the, the Chinese uh, carryout. I think that's, they have the best. That's the best, that's, that's the best place to go. But which one, though? But that's, uh, It's a joint. You probably not even hip to it. It's a joint called Mainland Carryout. Where is this, Darius? Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. It's over off, uh, right off of Marlboro Pike on the Maryland side. I think oh. they got the best joint. So, so here's the thing. It's a joint on 14th Street, the new school mumbo sauce in Hamilton. Oh, the, you did not just mention that Hamilton mumbo sauce, Darius. This is the bougiest mumbo sauce I've heard of in a long time. You just discredited your whole conversation. Come on, you're supposed to be in the community talking about some Hamilton mumbo sauce, bro. I know, but the thing is, I know I'm in the community, so I ain't got to get in here. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me a question. I ain't got to pay for nobody. I know I'm not. Man. <laughs> Back in the day, it was, it was yums for me. Back in the day. After you but hit young, young, young's all right, but Young's get there. They probably get this from Costco. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this has been another wonderful episode of the Quick <laughs> Jerk Podcast. Deuces. 